0: You are listening to the Kensington Church Podcast, recorded
1: live in Michigan. To learn more about Kensington, visit
0: kensingtonchurch.org. I
1: remember hearing at Kensington years ago, kind of like the, when you feel God nudging you to do something, just lean into it and see it out, do what you can. We had conducted a
0: number of clothing drives and actually a youth sports equipment drive for different organizations down in Pontiac. And that then created the idea of Oxford Open-Handed.
1: My mom would have students that would sometimes come to school in like the same clothes every day, like dirty clothes. So she would take my brother and I's old clothes and would drop them off to them in the middle of the night sometimes. Not
2: the ones they were wearing most of the time, but put them and take them to school or drop them off at the different homes.
1: She and my dad had talked about something like this for a while, but never as something like, oh, like let's actually do it. It was kind of like, wouldn't it be cool if one day I think my dad and my mom and I, we were just kind of like what if we just tried this? By the end of the day, we
0: literally had a business plan for Oxford Open-Handed.
1: We set a day for our first collection drive.
2: We decided, let's just do it in the, in our house and invite people in. So Scott and the boys started taking apart our garage, turned our really messy garage into a really cool spot.
1: In that span, we had, I think, like, almost 200 appointments just in our garage in the, like, year-round. So in the winter, we had to keep the garage door shut and we had a space heater out there and it was freezing cold. We still have pictures of like in our basement of just mounds and mounds of clothes stacked up against the wall. I think every single day we went down to our basement, one of us said, what were we thinking?
3: I think they just really wanted to fill a gap that they saw, which was kids needing clothes and sports equipment in a way that would honor their dignity.
0: So we started to look around for different opportunities. A mutual contact of ours told us about this space that may be available.
3: The
1: Oxford Downtown Development Authority offered us this space and have allowed us to use this rent free. And all we had to do was come in here and clean it up a little bit.
2: We were able to pretty much make it to what we have now. We have a lot of volunteers from from Kensington, we have different people doing drywalling and the electrical work and just so many great, great helpers.
1: So downstairs, we have a bunch of racks and shelves of clothes ranging from newborn clothes all the way up to adult sizes for teenagers. And so then once families come in, we just give them a big bag and they're allowed to take whatever they need. And there's no limit here. There's They don't have to pay anything. They don't have to provide any kind of um, information. Our only criteria is if they say, hey, can we come get some clothes? Then that's enough for us. I do the scheduling so I get people here who need clothes, who want to donate clothes, or people who want to volunteer. But then after that, it's really those people who then show up have really done the work to make this the way it is. We have our volunteer wall back there where there's a bunch of names and signatures. Those are just some of all the people who have come and volunteered here who have helped out. And that's Really the biggest thing about this space that we've been able to have is that not only have we been able to have more people come get clothes, but we've been able to have so many more people come and help others get clothes. The
3: Move Out Network is just an, is a beautiful opportunity to try some different teams, to, to take what you're passionate about, and to just go out and try what it looks like to volunteer and, in that space. So one of our dreams with the Move Out Network is that our teams would work together and collaborate together and share some of their resources. And so that has happened really beautifully with Oxford Open Handed.
0: So far, we've actually worked with a number of different Move Out teams through Kensington's Move Out Network, uh, including House of Hope Ministries, the Afghan Refugee uh, Welcome Team, the Orient Action Team.
3: And then they've also worked with our WAVE project. They have provided some things for their Essentials clothing van.
0: One of the things that has really been poured into us is the idea that people can give other time, talents, and treasures uh, to something bigger than themselves. and even our name oxford open handed was created in that mm-hmm. um, that idea
2: it's not just us giving that there's a lot of giving back that is done.
3: I think the Huller family, they listened really well. They just took this step of faith, not knowing what the outcome was gonna be, not knowing how they were gonna manage it all. And then every step of the way, as they've been obedient, it feels like God has come in and provided. It's just an encouragement to me personally, when I feel God's stirring something in me, like to just take that step of faith.
1: One of my favorite stories is pretty recent. We had a woman, it was her, two sons birthday coming up and she wasn't going to be able to really do anything for them. So we had put out a Facebook post asking if anyone wanted to help out and we had um, I think like two dozen people give money through Facebook and we were able to give them a pretty substantial gift card for them to be able to get gifts. It was just awesome. She then sent me a picture I think on their birthday of just this table full of presents for them and she just said how it was like their best birthday ever and I've kind of just sat back and been like Wow! Like this couldn't have happened without God playing a part in it.
0: You often think, as the as the dad or the mom, that we should be showing him, you know, how to yeah. how to act or um, how to treat people. But he really has shown us just uh, that open-handed willingness to uh, just serve others in any capacity.
4: The Holler family are some of my favorite people that attend our Orion campus. Both Scott and Leanne and their sons, Sam and Luke, are doing an incredible job to being a part of one of the most important things that we do here at Kensington called Move Out. I love this. One of the greatest things we get to do, it's part of our mission statement, to see everyone transform but mobilize. That means we move out. When the love of God impacts our life and our hearts, there's nowhere else for it to go but outward. And it gives you a chance to really do some local outreach right in your backyard, all around the world, all over. But it gives us a chance to move out and make an impact to the people in our community that we love and we care for. And it's one of the greatest things, I think, that we get to do at Kensington. Hands down. That's why you know as well as I do this is a time of year that we're all considering the things that we believe in and we love and how to support them to continue to do what they do into this next year and I'm just going to challenge you find a better place to give your money to make an impact this is how we do it. When you make a year in gift at Kensington, which I'm going to challenge you to do this year, you're creating a space where people like Scott, Sam, Leanne, Luke are being equipped, motivated, and challenged to move out into the community and reach people that we'll never reach inside of our doors. So many of you are a part of that, and so many lives have been transformed because of it. So to all of you, I say thank you and have a great Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. There's nothing quite like our uh, high-def cameras to make you feel insecure about your face on a giant screen. Like, man, did I even sleep that week? Scott and Leanne are some of, I think, some of the best part of this whole community here, as are so many of you that, like Scott and Leanne, are trying to figure out how do we just say yes? Like Becky said, they've just said yes to things that God has put on their heart. But the most powerful part of their story I think actually begins long before any of the impact, before anybody walked through their garage or before anybody walked through the facility they have now, the most powerful part of their story began with what any of us can do. It's that they saw people. It's that they were committed to see the people around them in a different way and say, we can do something about that. And all the doing came after that. And that's true for anything we do in life. Anything that we do in this life that matters begins first with seeing. Whether it's an issue of serving somebody, giving to somebody, rescuing somebody, sacrificing for someone, it all begins first with seeing. And that's why, honestly, this time of year when we celebrate these stories and we celebrate the things that God has allowed us to be a part of this last year, that's why we also are continually saying, hey, as you're thinking about year end and you're thinking about what you're doing to gift the places and the people that you love and believe in, like we hope that this is one of those places that you're also thinking about. Because it creates space and place and moments like the Huller story. Say this all the time here, but if you ever come to believe that Kensington's not making a difference with the giving that you give, then tell me we'll find somewhere else for you to give it. But as long as we are, I'll say what I said in the video let's find a better way to give our money and a better place to give it to. Because I think this is how we continue to make sure that we really do put into action what we believe as followers of Jesus that. Our following Jesus can't terminate on itself here in a building. Like, this can't be the end of it. That we come on a Sunday, we watch, we listen, and then we go home. It has to be that we move out into our neighborhoods, into the world. And I just, I love that, you know, Scott and Leanne aren't the only ones. There's so many of you here that are doing that as well. But I love that we are a community committed to that. And one of the ways that we do that is through our giving, and it's through our locking arms together. So as we're moving into the end of the year, we just continue to ask, like, is this a place you believe in? And we say, hey, let's get more of that done this next year. I think everything that we will do over the course of this next year, whether stories like Scott and Leanne or anything else of impact, it will all begin with the simple step that they took themselves. They just saw people. And that explains the impact we have in people's lives, it explains the really the simple reality of starting and growing in a relationship. Like you don't have even friendships unless you first see somebody, unless you acknowledge one another. Not just see them like, oh, you're wearing red, you're wearing blue, but you know that seeing where you know somebody, you see somebody, and you acknowledge them. I was, last night, um, I even asked my wife. I was like, we've been married 27 years. And I said, hey, babe, we met in college, very first day, very first class, English 101, Professor Wagner. And I said, hey, when, uh, when we walked into that class, who, who do you think saw who first? And I totally thought she was going to go, well, you saw me first. And she said, oh, e- she didn't even skip a beat. She goes, oh, easily, I saw you first. I was like, yeah, you did. I knew it. <laughs> yeah, you did. I, I actually, I'm not sure that you're right. I don't know if you saw me first or I saw you first. But I do remember when you looked over and I knew that you saw me. You know what I mean? Like, there's, there's times when, you know, somebody's looking past you, over you. You know, that look, even when somebody's looking through you and you're like, I'm here. Like, but then there's the moments where somebody is looking at you. I'll never forget the time where I looked over and I was like, oh, oh, how you doing? You know, and it's just like, I knew she was looking at me. And then the rest, well, the rest was history from there. But there are just powerful moments in life that begin with the act of seeing one another. I think probably as we go into this time of year, especially, we're talking about Christmas, we're talking about Jesus, the birth of, we're going to celebrate that in a couple of weeks. All of what is Christmas began with the simple act of a young woman being seen. Began with the act of a birth that was the most famous birth in all of human history, the single most birth that changed history, the birth so important that it split history into two different sections. The birth that is the single most important birth in our Christian faith that we hinge on. It all began with an unseen, nobody, young woman, born and raised in obscurity, being seen by God. I want to read just a little bit of Mary's story, set context, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go into the rest of the day. In the book of Luke, chapter 1, verse 26, it says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent an angel to Gabriel, to Nazareth, to a town in Galilee, To a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, who was a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Everything that will come after that moment and that prophecy and that miracle, all of it, from the God of creation stepping into humanity, to the cross, to the resurrection, to the offer of salvation for all humanity, every bit of it, began first with the simple act of God acknowledging and seeing who would have otherwise been a very unseen young woman in history. So let me just pray and ask that God would help us not just make sense of Mary's story, but what does Mary's story have to do even with our story? So Father, I just come before you this morning and acknowledge that today my voice is not the voice we need to hear, God. It's your voice that we need to hear. And so I do kneel before you because I believe that you are the maker of heaven and earth, You are the creator of all things, and you are my king. And so I wish this morning that everything I would say would honor you and would lift you up, would be true and right to the scriptures that you have given us and to who the person of Jesus is. And Jesus, I ask that you would help me to honor your mom, to do justice. Where sometimes we have a tendency in the church world to either, either put too much attention on Mary, to overemphasize her, or in our case, more often than not, it's to underemphasize her. And so I pray that you would help me to honor you, but do justice to the story of your mom and how you chose her and why you chose her and what that means for, I believe, how and why you choose us as well for similar reasons and ways. God, I pray um, selfishly even for my voice <clears throat> that I already feel like I'm struggling to keep. After the first service, uh, this is that time of year, God. So I pray that you would be the power that would get me through this morning with a voice that holds out. But more than that, God, you would be the presence that interacts with each of us today. Whether we believe in you, whether we're trying to figure you out, whether we're not sure that you're there, would you do something to communicate to the deeper parts of who we are. Get past our mind, but tangle up with our mind. And get to our heart to say something to us about who you are about what you did to see Mary all those years ago, and about how it is that you see us. In Jesus' name, amen. So by the way, if my voice does any weird, cracky stuff, and it sounds like I'm back in junior high puberty, forgive me, it's, uh, it's just it's that time of year, it's Christmas, so I probably shook one of your hands last week and got it, so thank you very much. <laughs> <clears throat> um, so for me, many of you know this, I... Um, I grew up with a blind dad my whole life. My father was uh, born with the ability to see, but he was three months premature. And so when he was born, one of the things that happened in the period of time where he was born, which sadly was common to many babies for a short period of time, was that they were put in an incubator and given too much oxygen. And the abundance of oxygen ended up killing his eyes. And it wasn't long after, I think, about the year or maybe a little bit more after he was born, that the doctor even led my grandmother uh, to take his eyes out medically. Uh, surgically, they had to be removed. So he just has glass eyes. So my dad, born with the ability to see, but has never seen his entire life, which for me gives me an interesting relationship with the experience of being seen and being unseen. Like with my dad, for starters, we, this is horrible, but we, we didn't believe for the longest time that he was actually blind. We thought there was some kind of like pranking, hocus pocus, something going on. Because my dad, you know this, when you lose one sense, What happens? Yeah, the other senses kind of get heightened. So my dad's got some kind of like freakish beyond human ability to hear. Like there were times where I remember sneaking down in the middle of the night, and my dad's sitting in the front room, listening to the radio, and I'd hear, Craig, go back to bed. I'm like, that man is not blind. There's no way he can, and he would tell us later on, he's like, "I, I knew your footsteps. I knew your walk. All of you walked different. I'm like, no way. I remember once I asked my dad, I'm like, can you hear things? Like, are you like daredevil? Like, can you hear things? He's like, well, sometimes, some things. So we're walking one day, and he goes... Just pass the telephone pole. I'm like, open them up again. There's no way. There's no way you're blind. And he would tell me how, like, you could hear the wind. And sometimes when something would break the pattern of the wind or the feeling of the wind. And so it was probably just a lucky guess when he said telephone pole, but he knew something was there. So we started testing him, even. This is where it gets really bad. If you don't know me yet, you're gonna be like, this guy is awful. Or maybe it'll just solidify that you think that. But we're like, we're gonna prove that dad can see. He's gotta be able to see somehow. So we would we'd do, like, you know, like the simple things where you're just, like, waving in front of him. He's like, what are you doing? Not, nothing. Nothing at all. But then I remember once my sister and I decided to put things in front of him when he was walking. We're like, I mean, if he's not going to sacrifice himself to trip. My dad probably has permanent scars on his shins because of us horrible kids. And then I would take my G.I. Joe's sometimes, and I would put them in his chair I'm like, if he sits on a G.I. Joe, that's not going to feel good. So let's see how this goes. I sacrificed a couple of G.I. Joes for this, but it was a worthy cause. In the end, I concluded, huh, I guess my dad really is blind. But my dad, the part of the struggle is my dad was able to do basically everything. He did not let his blindness hold him back at all. Remember, as a matter of fact, as a kid, one of our traditions every year is my dad would pack us up. He would get all of us as young kids, I mean, super young, me, my sister, my brother, before the other four came, and he would take us on the bus to downtown Detroit, where he would navigate on his own. Not my mom. Mom, mom stayed home. This was just my blind dad navigating Detroit, Eastern Market. We'd culminate at the Rocky Peanut Company. We'd get candy and snacks and all the Spanish peanuts that would last us two months. And that was, my, that was our trip. The problem is for me, like going down there, one of the things that was always difficult to understand is I remember there was one particular spot where there was always people, blind people, who were begging for money. And I could never, like I couldn't reconcile that in my mind because I had a blind dad who had been a court stenographer from Wayne County Juvenile Court. He had been an x-ray technician for a local hospital. Uh, he retired eventually uh, after going back to school to get a business degree from his own business that he opened up. Like my dad just didn't let anything get in the way of him being blind. There were even times that we had to remind him, dad, there's certain things that you actually can't do because you're blind, but he just wouldn't listen to it. Drive cars, he did that. I mean, he just ride a tandem bike, he did that. My dad just, he was like, I'm just not gonna let the blindness stand in the way. So I have this interesting experience in my whole life watching my dad who couldn't see do amazing things and incredibly impressive things for anybody, let alone a blind person. And yet, I will also tell you that one of my, in all honesty, one of my deepest pains throughout my life is that my dad's never seen me. Like, think about growing up your whole life, and maybe some of you have had this experience, maybe for other reasons. But growing up your whole life with a father who's never put his eyes on you, has no idea what you look like. I could tell you right now if I close my eyes, I could tell you the features of all three of my kids. I could tell you what they look like, not just what they sound like. I could tell you the color of their hair, freckles on their face. I could tell you about my kids. And one of the things that has been a bit of a pain to me my whole life, a sadness to me, is that my dad has never seen me. But it's also one of the things that is a hope for me is that I do believe that there will come a day where my dad will have eyes and he'll look on my face for the first time ever. I don't know if in heaven we'll be able to play pranks. I hope we can, because I'm gonna be like, I'm Nick, see if he can figure it out. But but there's a day that my dad's gonna get to see me. And I can't wait for that day. I think that the ability to be seen or unseen goes way beyond just the physical eyes, which is why every single one of us knows the impact of being seen. Listen like really seen, that somebody knows you, acknowledges you, like sees worth and value in you. But that also means that I think we all know the opposite, which is the pain of not being seen. If I could tell you one more quick story with my dad. So in my family, uh, seven kids, most of us are married, uh, brothers-in-law and sisters-in-law and uh, 16, 18 grandkids, big plan. I'm the only one that hunts. I've hunted for years. There have been several times over the years where I've harvested a deer, put it in my dad's freezer so mom and dad have a little extra meat. I've asked my dad along the way, hey, dad, would you ever want to hunt? Never really been interested. And you're like, he's blind. I've told you this guy can do anything. So I'm like, hey, would you ever hunt? No, I'm not really interested. So this year, my dad actually went hunting. And for the first time ever in his life, I'll show you a really quick picture. Some of you may be horrified, but we won't leave it up long. My dad took a doe this time for the very first year ever. Yeah, so we can take it down. But that, here's why I tell you that story is because guess how I found out about this? I saw it on Facebook. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not kidding. Scrolling through Facebook one day and I come across that photo and a post from the company that he partnered with, because there's all these companies out there like this one that help disabled people or blind people do things that maybe they couldn't otherwise do as normal as you and I. So they have a whole getup that I can't explain. It to take too much detail. But there's a getup set up setup where my dad was the one that actually, he fired the shot. He took the deer. He harvested it himself. And the post from that company read, Craig McGlasson, blind hunter, takes first deer with his son. It was actually my brother in law, James. Love James. James is a great guy. But I'm his son. And I remember looking at that post and I remember thinking, what the heck, Dad? Why? Like, I didn't even know you were going hunting. And I didn't get the invite. And immediately, it created this space in my heart where I felt very unseen, very frustrated. Thanksgiving, my parents, we hosted, my parents were over, my dad pulled me aside at one point. He says, Hey, can I ask you a question? And my dad, he's not a super big talker. Uh, over the years, he and I, we're not on the phone a lot with each other. So when my dad wants to talk, I'm like, Oh and he says, Hey, I gotta ask you a question. Were you were you upset that I didn't ask you to go hunting with me? And so it started a great conversation between the two of us, and I was able to be very honest with him that I felt very missed and, and unseen and overlooked by him in that moment. And he said, well, I just, he goes, I know you're busy and got a lot of stuff going on. I just didn't think you'd want to come. And so I was able to tell him, Dad, I would have loved to have been there as your son to have been by your side the first time you had an experience like that. So then we talked about next year, and and the organization's already asked him if he wants to come back, and he said, well, how about next year? Do you want to go with me? I'm like, heck, yeah, I do. James is getting a boot. We're taking a buck, not his little girly dough. (laughs) So next year we're going to go, but it created this weird moment for me that we had to work through where it had nothing to do with the fact that he's blind, but I still felt very unseen by my dad in that moment. If I could go around this room, I know that if I talked to each and every one of you or you got on a mic, you could share similar stories, moments where you have been incredibly seen, where your presence and your worth and your value has been acknowledged and noticed and, and you felt it, and other moments where it was the opposite, where you felt very unseen, very looked over, very dismissed, very looked through. Some of us have felt one or both of those experiences at work. Some of you feel it at school. Some of you feel very seen at school. Some of you feel very unseen. Some of you, it's in your marriage. It was an incredible day when you both said, I do. And yet something's happened along the way, and right now you feel the most unseen by the closest person to you. Or sometimes it's just your own family. Or sometimes it's church. Sometimes in this community where we should be the place where we see each other the most can be a place where we most feel unseen. One of the things that's interesting about the life of Jesus, the more that you study him, is that he has this really paradoxical reality to his humanity and ours. Paradoxical meaning that on the one hand, he is completely not like us. And at the same exact time, this is the paradox, he's completely like us experiencing very much the same things we have, understanding the same things that we go through. And this is one of them. There were moments in Jesus' own life, where even though he's a God of creation on earth, that he was very overlooked, unseen, and looked through. As a matter of fact, in your Bibles, in the book of John, it says it this way. If you have a Bible, John chapter one, it says, the true light that gives light to everyone, this is Jesus, was coming into the world. And he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not say it. What? He did not recognize him. And he came to that which was his own, but his own did not, one more time, what does it say? Receive him. So because he didn't recognize him, they did not receive him. So here's the God of creation walking among his creation. Like, I don't know if you've ever thought this, but I know many of us that have walked with God have thought this throughout the course of our life. I have. If I could have just been there, if I could have just seen him, it'd help answer so much of my doubt or my questions. Or if I prayed to God and I could hear his audible voice back, it would give me so much more certainty. And yet there was a whole bunch of people that got that. They saw him, they heard him, they walked with him, they could have touched him, they heard his audible voice, and yet many of them still rejected him and did not acknowledge him as a God of creation. Why? Since they did not receive him, meaning they did not see him. They overlooked him. We looked right through him. But what we celebrate on the 25th of this month is that 2,000 years ago, our God really did come to this earth. And he allowed himself to be seen so that even now, 2,000 years later, across time and space, we see him. We see him differently than with our physical eyes, but we see him because our God did not remain just a mystery somewhere in the stratosphere, but there was a point in time where he put on skin and bone and fingers and toes, and he walked among us. He grew to a man. He died on a cross. He rose again from the grave, and he offered salvation to all of humanity, and all of that began with a very simple, simple act of God seeing a young woman who otherwise would have been lost to the ocean of humanity and never known. Mary. And I think there's a couple things about Mary's story that even though her story is not our story, I think God, he writes different stories with all of us. It's always one of the things we have to be careful of when we read the Bible is we always want to make somebody in the Bible's story exactly, well, this is exactly what happened to them. It's exactly what's going to happen to me. No, you're a different person. You have a different story. God's not going to make Mary's story your story, but I do think that Mary's story is in the Bible to serve as more than a history lesson of our faith, but to also serve as an understanding of how it is that God wants to interact with you and I today, not just how he interacted with his mother 2,000 years ago. And I think in that, some of the ways that God saw Mary, he also sees us. Our story will be different, our impact will be different, but I do think that some of the ways that God saw her, he also sees us. I want to go back to Luke chapter 1. I want to read the story a little bit and then make a couple of observations about how God saw Mary. So, if you have a Bible, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent an angel, Gabriel, to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. He was a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said to her, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of a greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, for Mary, you have found favor with God. And you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Most High, the Son of God. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And so Mary asked him, well, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the Holy One will be born and he will be called the Son of God. Even now, Elizabeth, your relative, she's going to have a child in her old age. She who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. And Mary's response, very simple, but incredibly powerful. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. So may your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. I think one of the first things that we see about how God sees Mary is he sees her very personally. Like when the angel shows up and he acknowledges her by name, this is important. Because he doesn't come to her and say, hey, you, hey, young woman, hey, girl. He comes to her and he names her. Mary, you are highly favored by God. The Lord is with you. This means that she's not a mistake. This wasn't a random house that he just stopped at where he's like, eeny, meeny, miny. I guess that one. It wasn't a wrong address. Oh, I was supposed to end up at Martha's. Like this was very intentional. He knew who Mary was because God knew who Mary was. He knew her name, and he didn't just know about her. He actually knew her, and he knew her personally. This is significant because Mary's born in a time in history where she would have been very unseen. She was a nobody to the culture in which she lived. As a woman, and in a time when women were devalued, not only just a woman, but she's a teenage woman. She's from a town called Nazareth. It's a dirty, broke not popular town. It's, it's the ridicule and the criticism of many of the towns around it. The, the criticism is nothing good comes from Nazareth. This is where she's from. Nobody would have seen her otherwise. Like, take our context here locally. Anybody know the town, River Rouge? I don't know if you're chuckling because you do or you don't, or you, maybe a couple of you. Yeah, it's, it's downriver. It's a small, broke, violent, I think for a while. I think 17 years running, it hit like number one in violence and crime per capita and all in all of Michigan. It's, it's, it's not anywhere that anybody's flocking to get to. The only thing that even makes it acknowledgeable is the ice factory there in Great Lake Steel. The only reason I know about it is because it's where I'm from. And so I know that when I was there, the reputation was also nothing good happens in Rouge and nothing good comes from Rouge. This is Mary. Like, she's from a place in a culture and a time where she would have been incredibly unseen. People would have looked right through her and never even acknowledged her. This is what's so powerful. To the world that gave no value to this young woman, the God of creation saw her. He didn't just see her with his eyes. He saw her with the worth and the value the world took away from her. And here's where her story is ours. He doesn't see Mary alone. He sees you too, and he knows you too, just as personally, just as affectionately, and with just as much value in his eyes as he sees you. One of the places in the Bible that I think of many that gives probably some of the clearest picture of the value and the personal nature of which God knows you is in the book of Psalm 139. The first few verses, just listen to these statements about God and you, and personalize them to you. Like these are things that are true to what God knows about you. Some of this might be scary, but it's how well he knows you. You have searched me, O Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit. You know when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. Do you realize you're not lost in the sea of humanity to God? You're not faceless, nameless, unknown. You're not just merged into the millions that do, have, or will exist in all of creation. Do you realize he knows you every bit as personal and individual as you know your own kids? It says here he knows when you sit. He knows you're sitting right now in this room. He knows where you're going to be sitting later today. He'll know the minute that you stand up from this place to leave. He knows where you go. He knows where you've come from. It says here he knows your ways. He knows your thoughts. Even before there is a word on your tongue, he already knows what you're going to say. You realize the God of heaven, he doesn't just see you. He personally knows you. <clears throat> and in that, he gives value to you that no one else can. The God of creation sees you. There's, a, there's even a place in the Bible where Jesus once said that he sees you and knows you so personal that he knows the amount of hairs on your head. For some of you, it didn't take long to count. For others of you, maybe. But he knows you that personal, that individual. And, and the concern I have, and if there's anything I hope in my time with you to raise the bar on just a little bit, is that some of you, even some of you who have walked with God for years and years and years, still fail to truly believe that the God of creation sees you with that kind of personal affection. You blow that off. You dismiss that. You think, no, not possibly me, because I know what I've done, and I know what my life has contained, and I'm not those people, the better people. And, And there is a dismissal that you give to the reality that God knows you and sees you and looks on you fondly and emotionally and tenderly like a father who knows his daughters and a father who knows his sons. And some of us who have even walked with God for year after year after year have not understood the depth and the power of that. And I think because of that, what also you have dismissed is that God, I believe, longs to profoundly use you as he did Mary in this world. That you would carry Jesus to the world like Mary did. Now you're not going to birth him, obviously. You're not going to give birth to the baby Jesus. That's happened. But that you, as he is in you, you would birth him out to the world, as did Mary, to the impact of not only your own life, but to the rest of the lives around you. And the less that we realize how affectionately and tenderly and personally God sees us, the less we will realize how powerfully he intends to send us. And as he does to have us carry Jesus into the rest of the world, just like Mary did. Matter of fact, there was a place in the Bible where the Apostle Paul once wrote about this reality. The reality that maybe you're not going to go birth baby Jesus, but the power, if you're a follower of his, the power that is God is in you. Romans chapter 8, this is what Paul once said to the Roman church. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you... He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Why? Because of his spirit who lives in, say it. One more time, like you believe it. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, somebody just did this for me. Personalize it, not you. Say, spirit lives in me. Yeah, one more time. Do you understand that? Do you understand the implication of that? That God doesn't just see you, if you are a follower of his, then his spirit is in you. Other places in the Bible would say the same power that rose Jesus from the grave lives in where? Yeah, lives in you. And, and here's what I'm just concerned about is that I know that you're probably like me in a lot of ways. There are so many parts of me that would dismiss that. And they would not believe that God intends, just like with Mary, in a profoundly powerful way, to have me go through this life carrying Jesus within me to birth him out of my actions, my behavior, my words into this world. And I dismiss that sometimes. I think, no, 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 not possibly me. And I think about the things that I've done, the things that I've thought, the things that I'm doing. I think about my lack of talent or my doubt. I think about all the things that in my mind would disqualify me. Or at least knock me down several rungs from the Billy Graham types of the world. And I know that many of you think the same thing. And yet here's the reality. I've read the book. And this Bible is a story of a God who time and time again throughout history has chosen to see those that the world does not see, that the world oversees and that the world even dismisses, to see us, to call us, and to then anoint us with favor. And not so that we can just come in here on a Sunday morning and sit in our cushy seats and listen to a message and then go home and consider it done but so that with Jesus inside you, you would go out into this world with power and determination and commitment and carry Jesus against the kingdom of darkness, pushing it back and bringing Christ to the rest of the world. That's what he's made us for. That's what he's put himself in us for. And that's the power of being seen, that you would then be sent to the rest of the world with Jesus in you. The story of Mary is a story of Jesus taking this little, insignificant, unknown girl and doing the miraculous, doing the the impossible. But the impossible is the playground for our God, because impossible is what he does. So even for you, I would say whatever's in your mind that may disqualify you, whatever thing in your life you think God couldn't possibly overcome this, conquer that, Make this happen. Whatever lie would tell you, he would never choose somebody like me. he never really use somebody like me. Listen, I'm here to tell you today that our God is a God who sees you, who knows you, who has called you. Our God is a God who says, if you will just walk with me, the things I will do through you, you can never possibly imagine. He is the God who knows you by name. He has enlisted you so that he can unleash you. And I'm telling you, if even just this room alone would believe that and own that and live that out, I'm telling you the world would never be the same again, ever. That's why D.L. Moody once said this, the world has yet to see what God can do and accomplish with someone who's fully devoted to him. My question is, will we be such people? People that say, God, I want to carry you like Mary did to the rest of the world. And I believe that you have a profound impact you long to have through my life. You have seen me. You have called me. You have enlisted me by name. But I think he does more than just sees us personally. He sees all the journey of what it means to walk with him personally, which involves things that we may think that we have to hide from God at times, like our doubt. You realize he sees all of your doubt. And he doesn't dismiss you, push you away, criticize you for it. Because maybe even some of you right now, you would think, man, I'd love to believe everything he just said. God sees me. He's affectionate towards me. He wants to unleash me to the world, to the good of this world, driving back the darkness of this world. But you're like, I I don't know. Maybe that's your doubt. Maybe your doubt is just that he exists at all. Like this idea of a God over us and creator of all things. Maybe your doubt is something else altogether. It's important for us to acknowledge that when Mary brought her doubt up, to the angel, he answered her. She says to him, I, I don't know if you failed biology, angel, but this isn't how a baby's made. Like, how, I'm a virgin, this, how is this going to be? And he could, have, he could have demeaned her for the question. He could have corrected her. He could have shamed her. Hey, I am Gabriel, the angel of God. Don't ask questions. He could have just ignored it. You know how sometimes people ask a question, and you just, it, you just ignore it and talk over it. If you're a parent, yes, you do. And, you, you know, he didn't do that either. He acknowledged it, and he gave her an answer. He said, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, and he will birth within you the Son of God who will be God himself. And, and that may not answer every nuance of her question. Okay, but, like, how exactly is that going to happen? But it did answer what she needed answered in that moment. And here's what I believe. Whatever doubt as you walk with God begins to surface, especially in relationship to the way he sees you and longs to empower you, if you will just bring that to him, if you'll be honest and sincere in bringing that to him, talk to him about it. Pray, talk to him. Go to his word. Don't go to a podcast. Don't go to a friend right now. Don't go to another book. Like, bring those things to him. I believe if you do, he may not give you all the answers you want, but he'll give you the answers in the moment that you need. One of my favorite verses in the Old Testament a book called Jeremiah prophet Jeremiah once wrote in uh, chapter 33, verse 3, cry out to me, this is God speaking to us, cry out to me and I will answer you. And I will answer you with great and unsearchable things that you do not know. Here's God's promise. If you come to me and you cry out to me, if you ask questions of me, if you bring your voice to me, I'll bring my voice back to you. I will answer. And then he says in a couple of ways, I will answer you with great things. And I will also answer you with unsearchable things that you do not know. So God says, listen, here's what I'll do. I'll start to answer back. If you come to me, if you sincerely bring question to me, I will answer. And I'll answer with some things that will blow your mind that you won't even understand. And I'll answer with other things that will be exactly what you need to hear in that moment. I love that God sees and acknowledges Mary's doubt in this moment of her being enlisted and noticed. He notices her doubt. He acknowledges There's questions that you have, and he meets her in those moments. He gives answer to some of that. God may not answer everything that you've got question about right now, but if you sincerely seek him, his promises, he answers back. He may not give you every answer, but he'll give you the ones that you need in the moment you need them. I believe that. He sees her doubt, but he also sees her fear. Which, again, if you're going to really walk with God, this is going to be a part of the relationship. Because there's going to be moments in temptation for fear. One of the things that the angel said early on when he showed up is he said, Mary, do not be afraid. I don't think that that instruction to not be afraid was as much about the moment as it was all the moments that would follow because of it. Because Mary's response is interesting. It says that Mary pondered in her heart what kind of an introduction this would be. Like She doesn't have a response that seems like she's freaking out or panicking. She has a response that's more like, I don't even understand what's happening right now. So when he says do not be afraid, it doesn't even make sense that he's addressing something she's presently doing. I think he's addressing what she will future experience. Because Mary is no dummy. And she knows in the culture in which she lives that to be a young, unwed, pregnant mother is among the highest things that you can be criticized and even killed for. She's well aware that as God says, I favor you, that what he is doing as he is favoring her is also inviting her into a journey that's going to be incredibly painful. Because on the relational side, the fact that she is this unwed mother that has to convince her husband that she's not been unfaithful, that has to convince friends and family, she realizes that she could lose friends and family. She could lose her neighborhood, her community. She could lose her home. She could lose everything relationally. But even legally, there is legal reality that For her as an unwed mother in this culture and this time, she could have been taken out to a public square, to the city gate, made a spectacle, had her clothes torn, her hair let down, all indications of being filthy and vile. She could have been made to stand there for days on end, to be made an example of, to be criticized and mocked by people, spit on as they walked past her. She's seen this growing up happen. She knows it's a possible reality for herself. There's even legal precedent that she could have been stoned to death. So when the angel says, do not be afraid, I happen to think that part of that is because in her mind, she immediately knows the journey you're bringing me into is not going to be all easy. This is going to be a walk of some pain and difficulty as well. And I don't know what's going to come my way. And so the angel says, but do not be afraid. You know, even after Jesus was born, only six weeks old, <clears throat> there's a prophecy made over Jesus' life in Mary's by a man named Simeon, chapter 2. the book of Luke says this. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause many falling and rising in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts and the hearts of many will be revealed. So he's saying, listen, I mean, imagine this being said. You have a baby, you're in the hospital. Somebody comes to you and says, oh, they're really cute. Okay, your baby is going to be the result of a lot of people falling and others rising. And there's going to be a lot of horrible things that are going to be said. They're like, wow, okay. And then, what if they were to look at you and say this? And a sword will pierce your own soul, too. What Mary didn't understand about that prophecy is that it meant that eventually, as a mom, she would watch her little boy hang on a tree and have a spear thrust through his side after nails were already put in his body. This is a very real mom. This is her son. Don't over-spiritualize the relationship. This is a mom and her son, and this is where she's headed. To watch things that not a single one of us could ever imagine happening to our children, let alone having to watch it happen. And this is the journey that the favor of God is drawing her into. That's why the angel said, don't be afraid. There's a lot of reason Mary could have said, hey, you know what? There's a Martha next door. How about you go to her? I'm not sure I really want to take this one on. She could have said, hey, uh, Elizabeth's pregnant? I, she's always wanted kids. Give her to. <laughs> she could have had Jesus, given him up for adoption. Maybe when Simeon said, your own heart will be pierced, your soul will be pierced one day, she could have said, you know what? All right, this is a bit too much. I gave birth to the Savior of the world. I'm going to give him up for adoption. She could have. Nobody forced her to walk this road. Nobody forced her to stay the course. She chose to do that, which is why the last thing that Mary says, I think, is some of the most powerful and important words in all the scripture. When she says to the angel at the end of him telling her all that's going to happen, verse 38, I am the Lord's servant, so may your word to me be fulfilled. Our God is a God of honesty and truth. He doesn't break his word. So when she says, may your word to me be fulfilled, she's not saying, really hope God keeps his promise. What she's saying is, I really hope I stay faithful to what you have asked me to do and be. Because I am your servant. So may your word to me be fulfilled by my life and by my actions. Do you know, twice in this passage, Mary is referred to as highly favored. And I've heard a lot of messages about Mary that refer to the fact that her impact in this world was because she was highly favored. I'm going to actually suggest that Mary's impact in the world wasn't simply because she was highly favored. It's because she was highly responsive. It's because she said yes. Just like with the Hullers. I love how Becky said that. They simply said yes. And so did Mary. Regardless of the pain, regardless of the cost, regardless of the risk, regardless of all the unknown in front of her. Her conclusion was, I am the Lord's servant. So may these words be fulfilled. Philip Yancey, who's an author, has said this about this moment in Mary's life. He says, often a work of God comes with two edges, great joy and great pain. In the matter-of-fact response that Mary gives, she embraced both. And this is so important. She was the first person to accept Jesus on his own terms regardless of the personal cost. Jesus saw her fear, and I think invited her to stay the course. He didn't diminish the fear. He didn't diminish even the potential pain that was going to come. But Mary chose, I'm his servant, and I'll carry Jesus to the world. Lastly, and with this, we're done. I think he also sees, not just in Mary, but in you and I, he sees the you that you're yet to become. Mary's story didn't end with the angel in the conversation. wasn't like the angel showed up and then she just like turned into sainthood. Like Mary still had the rest of her life to live. She wasn't picked because she was perfect and had it all together. She was still just like you and I in process and for the rest of her life, she would be. Even though she gave birth to the savior of the world, she still had to learn how to walk with him, yield to him, surrender to him and allow him to transform her. I can tell you this, I guarantee that by the end of Mary's life, she was not the same person that she was when she stood in front of that angel all those years ago part of the work that God does in us as he sees us is he sees you the true unfiltered rawest version of you that would make other people possibly run away from you it's what makes him run towards you and he sees the real you but then also is determined to transform you into the you that you're not yet do you know the the most uh the most iconic Christmas tree that we put up every year is the Rockefeller tree So the Rockefeller tree was a tradition that started back in 1931, right at the height of the Great Depression, right in the building and the construction of the Rockefeller Center in Manhattan, New York. And a bunch of the the iron workers, again, this is Great Depression, not a lot of reason to feel hope and joy. They decided, they took this 20-foot tree, kind of ragamuffin tree, put it up in the middle of the construction site, decorated it with what they had, and they did it as a sign of just hope. That may not be there yet, but they believed one day would. And in 1931, that spawned a tradition then that's carried on every year since. But that tree has grown and grown and grown to not just be much more magnificent than its origins, but to actually become the most iconic Christmas tree that maybe we put up in the entire country. Today, when that tree gets put up, it ranges anywhere between 70 feet to 100 feet. This year alone, that tree has 5,000 lights on it. The the wire that connects those lights totals five miles in length. Like it's a pretty impressive thing. But a couple of years ago, the tree that was picked was a pretty interesting pick. Here, here's a tree, I think from 2020 or 21. Okay, honest question, honest answer. Is that an impressive tree? No. No, it looks like it's half dead. The limbs are falling off, it's got all kinds of bare spots. Like, my wife and I, we do the cut the, the real tree down. That's, that's the biggest determiner, right? Does it have a bare spot? Like, this year, I found the tree, and then Nicole ruined it for me. She's like, bare spot on the back. I'm like, ah. Like, the bare spots, it killed the tree. Like, that's nothing but bare spots. Here's what I love. Somebody walked out and saw that tree. And listen to me. They saw worth where other people saw no worth. They saw value where other people would have overlooked that tree and walked past it. They saw prize where other people saw loss. Here's a tree after it was finally set up and lit. Very different looking tree. And it's not just because of the lights. It's filled out. Because you know what else they did is they actually grafted in. I didn't even know that you did this. But they grafted in limbs, foliage, new branches. And they took, listen to me. They took a tree that could have never been beautiful on its own, and they made it more than it ever could have been under its own power. This is what Jesus does. He sees you, the real you, the first tree you. He sees the spots and the blemishes, and he doesn't run from it. He runs to you. He sees the real, unfiltered, raw you, the you that you don't even want anybody else to know about. And it's what draws him to you but he also sees the you that you're yet to become. He sees the full version of you with 5,000 lights and branches filled in, becoming more with him than you could have ever become on your own. That's part of the power of God seeing you. He doesn't reject you for the things that others would reject you, but he transforms you into what you could never change yourself into. And for some of you, I just want to invite you and ask you, man, have you seen him? He sees you, but have you seen him? You know, if you go back to that passage in John where it says many did not see him, they did not acknowledge him. In that same passage in John, there are others that did the opposite. 2,000 years ago, there were men and women that started seeing Jesus. Verse 12 says, yet to all who did receive him, and to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children, not born of human descent nor human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word, it became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I just want to ask you have you seen Him? Like, have you honestly looked at and acknowledged Jesus? is the Lord of creation. doesn't mean you have it all figured out. It doesn't mean you understand everything. It doesn't mean it's without doubt. It doesn't mean it's not without anger or frustration at things you want answered to. But can you turn to him and see him as more than a man, more than a rabbi, more than a teacher, but the actual God of creation who came to this creation to see you, to know you, to love you, to call you by name, and to send you with Jesus in you to the rest of the world? I just want to invite you, if you've not seen him, acknowledged him, man, see him. See him. He's not just a man. He's not just a faded part of history. He is the God of creation. And to those of you in the sound of my voice that you have made a determined decision to live your life for Jesus, remember, part of Mary's story is to be passed on to you and I as a lesson that God uses the most worthless things at times. To do the most incredible things. You realize that's part of what God longs to do through you. It's not just see you to love you, but see you that he would, with Jesus in you, send you to the rest of the world. That you would carry Jesus to the rest of the world. The world that is around you and the world beyond that. Listen, our world does not need some Cool, hip, shiny, overproduced form of Christianity to convince it that Jesus is Lord. What it needs is you, men and women, dedicated to Jesus, passionately committed to Him, willing to say, whatever you want done in me and through me, so be it. Willing to be marginalized, canceled, written off, ridiculed, willing to lay everything on the line for the sake of the gospel so that. The rest of the world may know there is a God. His name is Jesus, and he sees them too. That is what he has enlisted us for. And so I would just say this. If that's your desire, let's just end with Mary's words one more time, and may they be our words. We are your servant, God. And so may your words be fulfilled. Amen.
0: You've been listening to the Kensington Church Podcast. If you've enjoyed this recording, check back weekly for new content. You can find Kensington on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and, of course, at kensingtonchurch.org.